Let's turn our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to look at chapter 20 and chapter 21 this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you're our dad. And we come before you wanting to draw near to you, to hear your voice and your word. Thank you for everyone that's here this morning, that's listening to the live stream. Lord, you know us. You know our thoughts. You know the difficulties in our lives. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? Pray that you'd set me aside and give me grace and strength in communicating your word. In Jesus' name, amen. David is dealing with a difficulty, to say the least, in his life. His son Absalom tried to steal the throne from him, ultimately watching his son die. And you'd hope that things would just get easier for David. Sometimes when you're watching someone's life, you go, ah, if they could just catch a break. However, for David, now there's another person that wants to take the throne from him. It's Sheba, a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Once that is done, there's a famine that's in the land for, for three years. Oftentimes, when we look at people in the scripture, we assume that they don't have difficulty in their life, don't we? We go, he's a man after God's own heart. So he must not have challenges, or he must not have difficulty. Or you think of someone who writes a Christian book, or God's using them to declare God's word, or a missionary, somebody that's close with the Lord, and you go, oh, they, they don't have difficulty in their life. And we come to understand everybody has difficulty, and everybody has, has challenges. As we witness David navigate these challenges, I think there's a lot for us to be able to learn. And there happened there to be a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. The scripture calls him a rebel. The ESV version says a worthless man. That's God's commentary on this individual because he was committing rebellion against the king of Israel, the one who God had appointed. What was his argument? How did he get people to flock to himself? He's saying, we don't have any place in Judah, which was David's tribe. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe, the former king. So he's calling all of the men unto himself based on that. Satan always wants to divide us as Christians, and one of the ways that he does that is making us think that we don't belong among the people of God. You ever felt that way? Like you just walk into church one Sunday, and you're like, I don't really belong here. It seems like everybody has their act together, and, and I don't, or, or people know each other, and I, I'm the only outsider here. I don't know if I should come back. Or you've been at a church for a while and you start growing and then all of a sudden you just feel like you've got this monkey on your shoulder that's like, I don't really belong here. I don't, I don't have any place here. Did these other 11 tribes have a place in Judah? Absolutely, didn't they? But the whole division is taking place because they're saying, we don't belong here. So when you feel like that, remember that Satan's trying to remove you from the body of Christ. And not just this particular body, but the church as a whole. God wants us plugged in with his people, but the enemy's going to fight against that. A really important understanding that we see is in verse 2. It says, So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from Jordan, as far as Jerusalem, remained loyal to the king. 
This is a giant insurrection. This is a big rebellion. Only the tribe of Judah stays with David. The other 11 tribes go with this man, Sheba. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the 10 women, his concubines who he left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion and supported them, but didn't go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Remember when Absalom came into Jerusalem? He took these 10 concubines, David's concubines, knew them sexually. Now David's back in Jerusalem, and he says, I'm I'm not going to continue to have relationship with them, but he provides for them, and they finish out their lives in, in widowhood. And the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. Amasa had been the general with Absalom. David now puts him in charge of all of his troops, demotes Joab, who had killed his son Absalom. So he says, guys, I want you to gather together three days, and we're going to go and attack Sheba. David handles Sheba differently than Absalom because it's not his son. David's very decisive here. He says, this needs for us to take action. We need to do it right away. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. Why did he delay? This is not something, if you're the general of the troops and the king says, in three days we're going to war, they'd be like, ah, you know what? My car broke down. Sorry, I couldn't make it, or those type of things. It's pretty deliberate on Amasa for him to delay. We don't completely know the motivation of his heart, but it is possible that he's not really with David. Even though David had given him this position, that his heart could be against David. We don't know for sure. Verse 6, And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. Abishai's the brother of Joab. Remember, Abishai's the one who always wanted to kill Shimei on a couple occasions. So David turns to Abishai and says, come on, we got to go. We got to go now. We can't wait for Amasa to, to arrive. So Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all of the mighty men went out after him. Joab is with his brother Abishai, also these two people groups that were under tribute to David, go out to find Sheba. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at a large stone, which is in Gibeah, Amasa came before them. So, so here's the latecomer, Amasa, and he comes up to Joab. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at its hip. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? He's like, are you feeling okay? You know, you kind of missed the, the important meeting. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa didn't notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground. And he did not strike him again, thus he died. You were looking forward to lunch. Now you're not looking forward to lunch, right? Joab's a violent man. He's a rogue. He, he does what he wants. He's not concerned with taking people's lives. Why did he kill Amasa 
in this deceptive way. Hey, are you feeling okay? Let me greet you. (sighs) Puts the sword right into his stomach. Well, Amasa took his job as being the general. Maybe Joab does perceive that Amasa's not really with David. Nonetheless, this is not how God would want Joab to deal with the situation. This is not God's approval. This is an account of what took place. This is very different than David. David not taking things into his own hands, not being a person of violence, taking appropriate action at the right time, but Joab moving to this place of taking things into his own hands. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. The message is pretty clear here. He's standing next to Amasa's body, and he's saying, if you're for David and you're for Joab, follow us. But if you're not for David and Joab, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what is going to take place. Notice he links David's name with this. David didn't go and kill Amasa, but they link David to this, this action. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway, And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. When he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. These guys, these soldiers, they're they're headed out to try to find Sheba. And at first he's giving them a message, but now he's realizing he's halting traffic. They're they're all stopping and looking at Amasa so that they remove him out into a field and cover him up. It's kind of like rubbernecking in traffic. You guys familiar with that term? So you're headed northbound, you're headed up to Denver, there's a minor accident southbound, and what what does everybody do? Northbound. They slow way down and they go like this, and so the traffic is stalled on uh, the north end. Did you guys realize that the Renaissance Festival started this weekend? Do you know what that means for traffic? Terrible. Terrible all, all summer. Just trying to get north up to Denver. That has nothing to do with my message. (laughs) Verse 13. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And he went through all of the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Makah and all the Beerites. So they were gathered together and they also went after Sheba. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city and stood by the rampart, and all of the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Sheba is a coward. Why? Why can we say that with authority? Because he goes into a city, Abel, has nothing to do with this conflict, and uses people as a human shield. That's what terrorists do. Terrorists say, I'm going to use innocent people as a human shield. It's a military tactic, but it's ultimately cowardly. These people don't have anything to do with the conflict. Joab and his men are so focused on getting Sheba, they don't stop to realize this city doesn't have anything to do with the conflict. They're about ready to destroy the city, take innocent lives, they're banging on on the walls, battering the wall, Verse 16, then a wise woman cried out from the city, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. 
Praise the Lord for wise women. Amen? There's one wise lady in the city, and she's saying, wait a second. I need to speak to Joab before all of this goes down. When he'd come near to her, the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. So she spoke and saying, they used to talk in former times, saying, they shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. Am I among the peaceable and faithful in Israel? You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel? Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? We are actually known for ending disputes. In former times, when people had disagreements, they would come here because there were faithful people to help them navigate through this argument. Why does the scripture tell us she's a wise woman? Because, she says, let's stop and communicate before there's the loss of life and the destruction of this city. Maybe like Joab, you're on the warpath. Maybe you're not on the warpath this morning, but you will be this evening because something takes place. Tomorrow morning. It's easy for us to just say, I'm going to knock the wall down. I'm going to make my point. I'm going to deal with this. And at the end of it, there's going to be no questions asked and I'm going to have Sheba. And then there's a wise woman. There's the voice of reason that says, you know, why don't you stop and communicate before the damage is done? Remember when we used to talk about these things? Remember in former times before we started getting violent with each other, we would talk? Possibly the warpath is in your marriage. You're on a warpath. Going to make your point. Knock down some walls. Remember when you used to talk things through? Maybe it's with one of your kids, and it's time to get their attention, stop and communicate with another brother or sister in Christ in your work, in your neighborhood. Not only to stop and communicate, but to stop to hear God's voice. How many times in a conflict are we not even aware of the fact that God's with us and he would want to speak? Joab is nowhere in a place where he's seeking the Lord. I think we can say that. Stop to hear God's voice. Jesus is the ultimate reconciler. He died for our sins. He rose again. He can bring peace if we hear what he has to say about the situation. And then talk with the person that you have the conflict with and see if there could be agreement that would be made that would save destruction, that would save the loss of life and the the loss of a city. In verse 20, And Joab answered and said, Far be it from me, far be it from me, that I should swallow up or destroy. So when he's posed with the question, when he's challenged on his actions, he's saying, no, I don't really want to be that, that person that destroys this city. That is not so, but a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hands against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, watch his head will be thrown over the wall to you. She's like, okay, I hear you. You don't want to destroy the city? You want this rebel? She's like, we'll, we'll send his head right over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet and withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. 
by the end of these two chapters, you might drive away today going, I'm not really sure what we covered, but I do remember that homeboy getting his head thrown over the wall, you know? (laughs) But the scripture does say it was wisdom of the city, wisdom of this woman, that they handed over Sheba instead of allowing the whole city to be destroyed. That's the first difficulty that David deals with in this passage. From verse 23 to verse 26, we see how David delegated. And Joab was over all of the armies of Israel. It seems to be he's restored back to that position of being general. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiadad, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, these two people groups that were under their tribute. Aduram was in charge of the revenue uh, over the treasury. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elidu, was the recorder. Sivav was the scribe. Zadok and Abathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jerethite, was a chief minister under David. This does show good leadership from David. He's not trying to do everything. He realizes he can't do everything. And he's got his kingdom divided in some important areas. He has a military. He has a financial department. The spiritual with the priests. And giving it these different places and authority. And I think that's important when there's a team. Do you know what your role is? Is that, is that defined? Has that been, been given away? And they, they operate inside of these roles that were given. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he's killed the Gibeonites. The second difficulty, there's a famine. First year, they probably thought it's just the weather weather patterns. I think I've lived in Colorado Springs now for 16 years, and I've noticed we have weather patterns here. If you've lived here for some period, you've probably noticed that too. There'll be years where it's really dry, sometimes three, four, five years where there's hardly any, any moisture. Throughout the winter, there's no snow on Pikes Peak, and then you have years like this year, with a lot of snow, a lot of great rain, things are actually green, and it's this pattern. Probably would have been easy for them to think, oh, we're just in a year of drought, first year. Second year, that's kind of strange. Third year, what's going on? And David, in his wisdom, begins to inquire of God, saying, God, what's, what's, the, what's the deal here? Why are, why are we in famine? And the Lord responds and says, well, it's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house and what they did to the Gibeonites. Takes us back to the book of Joshua. That's where the story with the Gibeonites begin. God had told Joshua to wipe out all those living in Canaan, the promised land. The Gibeonites were one of those people groups. They get wind of this, and they come to Joshua in a very deceptive way. They make themselves to look like they were foreigners and traveled a long distance. So Joshua then extends mercy to them and says, look, this is the agreement that we have. We're not going to wipe you out. You guys can be our our servants. And then they take off their costume and they're like, we got (laughs) you. We got you. We're actually living right here, right right down, down the road. And even though Joshua had done this unaware, God said that he should have sought the Lord and he wanted him to honor his oath. So all these years later, we go from Joshua to Saul. Saul decides that he's going to try to wipe out the Gibeonites, going against the word of God, going against what God had asked them to do. And a very important part of this passage 
is it was Saul and his bloodthirsty house. His whole house was involved in this. And we'll see that play out in the text. Why does God then give them a famine? He does it to correct them and to get their attention. God will do the same in our lives. He disciplines those he loves. So if there's an area that's we're in rebellion to the Lord, willful disobedience to God, a lot of times he'll speak to us in a very quiet way. We can respond in conviction and repentance or we can blow right through it. And if we blow through him speaking to us time and time again, eventually, then God will get our attention through difficulty. He'll get our attention through a famine for the purpose of repentance. Does this mean that every trial or difficulty in our lives is because of our disobedience? No, please hear me on that. Because we know in this life, there's tribulation. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So not every difficulty is because of disobedience, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Why does God care so much about what they did to the Gibeonites? Because they were taking innocent people's lives. Saul was killing innocent people that they had committed to protect. Now, He's killing them. And one of the things that's a passion point for God is the bloodshed of innocent people. We find it from the very beginning, Genesis with Cain and Abel, the first murder. And the blood cried out from the ground unto God. And as you look throughout the scripture, ultimately, in a culture, and a people group, if bloodshed continues to happen of innocent people, God will bring correction. God will bring judgment. So what does that mean for our country? Bloodshed is so common, it doesn't even get our attention. We take people's life with no thought to what that means before God. Eventually, God in his character, to have equity inside of who he is, has got to bring correction upon our culture. I think even as God's people, we sense that, don't we? We know that as we we read the scripture. In my mind, there's one or two options, one of two options for the United States of America. We're either moving towards God's judgment, and I don't know what that looks like, but it's for the purpose of bringing repentance to us, or God's kindness that we're now currently experiencing will lead us to a mass repentance of returning to the Lord. Those are the one or two options. If things just continue the way they're going, at some point, God is going to say, all right, here's the consequences, here's the judgment to bring about repentance. I pray that it would be the kindness of the Lord that would stir us to repentance. The book of Hosea is the last prophet to the northern kingdom before they're taken captive. 722 BC. And Hosea says, there's no knowledge of God in the land. They don't even know God. They have no understanding about who God is. And this is the children of God. This is Israel that we're talking about. But they'd gotten so far from the Lord that they had no comprehension of who God is. Do you know how quickly that we're racing towards that? You go out into our streets, into our neighborhoods, into our workplace, and you talk about who Jesus is, there's a very minimal knowledge of who God is. So guess what that means for us? We want to be in God's word. We want to know him. 
with our minds and love him with our minds, but also know him and walk with him in our hearts and our lives. And we have the potential to take the knowledge of God to a people that don't have it. One of the things that I love, 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 is being able to hand a Bible to somebody who's never had one before. If you don't own a Bible, we want to give you one. There's Bibles at the the door, so you can come up and talk with a pastor. Afterwards, we'll give you a Bible. All the time in this church, we see people coming to receive Christ as their Savior, and they've never opened up a Bible before. And we get to help them find the book of Mark, and they start reading the book of Mark, and God begins doing a work in their life. And guess what? You have hundreds of people in your life that are just like that. They have no knowledge of God. No one has explained to them who Jesus is, that he's God, that he died for their sins and rose again. And you don't have to be an expert. You could get five Bibles. We sell Bibles in the bookstore at cost, not marked up. Buy five of them and say, you know what? God, would you give me five people to be able to give a Bible to? Hey, I want to I share with you God's word. Let me show you the book of Mark. And it's a great book to be able to begin to start reading. So we go on in verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and they spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Going against what God had said in his zeal for the children of Israel, his misguided zeal. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Great wisdom from David. He knows the Gibeonites consider them to be an enemy because of what Saul did. So he says, what would we have to do to where you would actually consider us to be a blessing again? If you've wronged someone and sinned against someone, this is a great way to approach them. Would you please forgive me? I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done. And what could I do to make it right to where you would actually consider me to be a blessing again in your life? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. They didn't want to be paid off. They didn't want innocent people to die. So David said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumes us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in all of the territories of Israel. Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. They're asking for seven sons of Saul. Why? Because justice is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So they, they went in and killed innocent people. So now seven of the house of Saul is going to die. It appears at first reading, why would the sons pay for Saul's sin? But it goes back to verse one. It was Saul and his bloodthirsty house. His sons were part of this plot to wipe out the Gibeonites. So David goes along with it and he says, here are these seven sons. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, the grandson of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. David had promised to protect the descendants of Jonathan. David's going to keep his word. He's seeing what's happened to Saul because Saul's disobeying an oath. He 
uses wisdom to fulfill his word. Verse 8 is the, the sons that are given over to be hung. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, a different Mephibosheth than what is referred to in verse 7. The two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, and five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up from Adriel, the son of Barazilia, the Mihalathite. <laughs> Verse 9, and he delivered them in the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and they were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. In verse 10, now Rizpah, if you look back at verse 8, two of her sons were were killed. The two sons of Rizpah, now we, we find Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, in verse 10, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. She doesn't want to see her sons, their, their bodies, be taken apart by the beasts of the field, or by the birds. So she's protecting them day and night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. So this gets to David, and then David responds to it. He's moved by it. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, which had been stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. When Jonathan and Saul were killed, they took their bodies and nailed them to to the gate. It was the Gibeonites that took down their bodies and gave them a proper burial. David's now going and retrieving the bones of Saul and Jonathan. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan and his sons from there and gathered the bones of those who had been hanged They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zewah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So he performed all that the king commanded and all that God had heeded the prayer of the land. It's really important to understand what's happening here. Is when we went to Israel in February, I learned something that was really fascinating. The way that they would bury in Israel through the Old Testament and into the time of Jesus would be in a tomb that was actually a cave. And it, normal wasn't a, a natural cave, but you would dig into the side of the hill, uh, this, this small cave, and then when someone in your family would die, you would always bury them in this same tomb, in this same cave. And you would be buried upon your, your father. So, so Kish had been buried in a particular tomb, but because of what had happened with Saul and Jonathan, they were never buried upon their father. And this was something that was very important to the Israelites. So David is showing honor to the house of Saul by making sure that Saul gets to be buried with Kish, Jonathan gets to be buried there, these other seven sons that had just been hung, they get to be buried as well. And what would happen is, so the father passes away, he's decayed, and it's just his bones. And now the son dies, and you're actually put upon the bones of your father. 
you would then decay, and then your son would die, and he'd be put on your bones. And so when you read in the Old Testament, they were buried upon their fathers. They're literally getting buried upon their fathers. Now, I can see your faces. You guys are like, this is gross. Like, way too much information, more than I wanted to know. I actually think it's really cool. And you're like, why? Why do you think that's really cool? Because it really would draw you as a family to your roots and your heritage. You go, man, this is where my father's buried, and he's buried upon my grandfather. Eventually, I'm going to be put in that exact same place, and it causes you to think and consider your life. But here's the takeaway. How easy would it have been for David to be really bitter at Saul? Saul tried to destroy him. Here, they're still paying the consequence for Saul and his household's sin, But David doesn't allow the bitterness to get the best of him, and he's still honoring the house of Saul because of the position that God had given to Saul. It's a great example of not allowing bitterness to get the best of us. We end out the chapter with the last challenge. Actually, let's see. I'm getting ahead of myself. So it's confession time here, okay, guys? So when there's three services, sometimes I forget at this last service if I've already said it or not. So apparently I haven't said it yet. So before we get to the third challenge, look at the the end of verse 14. And after that, God had heeded the prayer for the land. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. When things were made right with the Gibeonites, after these seven sons were killed, then God opened up the heavens and provided rain. If you're at that place where you're God's child and you're in rebellion to the Lord, if you get right with the Lord, he's ready to restore. He's ready to open up the heavens to meet you in that that place. A lot of times we want the restoration without the repentance. The repentance comes first, then there's the restoration. The last challenge is Goliath's sons. Goliath has sons who are giants and they come after David. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Why did he grow faint? Because he's getting older. He's an older man at this point. He's been king for some time. He doesn't have the strength that he once did. Then Ishbi Banab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, about seven and a half pounds. Imagine a long spear that's seven and a half pounds that you would throw with accuracy, who was bearing a new sword, thought that he could kill David. So Goliath's son, who David had killed, is now coming after David. David's growing faint, but Abishai, this man we've been talking about, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, you shall not go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel." So if Abishai doesn't come to the aid of David, it appears that he would have lost this battle. They say, David, you can't go fight with us anymore. Your value to us is not as a warrior, your physical ability, but the light that you give us, the guidance that that you provide. As we get older, our physical abilities decrease, but hopefully the guidance that we can provide with the Lord increases. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And Shebekai the Hushite killed Zaph, who was one of the sons of the giant. So the second giant falls. Again, there was a war at Gob with the Philistines where Elhanah, 
the Bethlehemite killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a beaver's wing. So third giant that falls. Yet again, there was a war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. He had so many toes, he had to call a tow truck. It was was totally disgusting. Oh, just making sure you're still with me. 24 in number, and he was also born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This is fascinating. When David was a young man, he was the only one that wanted to stand up against a giant of the Philistines. Now he's old. He doesn't have the physical strength to do it any longer, but there's multiple men that are ready to step up and fight the giants for God's glory. How did these men first come to David? They were in debt. They were distressed. They were discontent. But over time, as they walked with David, they became mighty men. Here's the lesson. You become like who you journey with. You become like who you follow, who you look up to, who you admire. If it's someone like David, you're going to naturally become like them. They take steps of faith. They see the giants through the lens of God's character. And you will find yourself walking in their footsteps to see giants fall for God's glory. So be careful who you do life with. Your closest of friends, who you journey with, who you choose to model your life after. You want it to be somebody like David. One of the greatest testimonies to David's life and leadership is it multiplied. As he's going off the scene, it's past, it's contagious to other men that are w- willing to step up and enter into the battle. Ultimately, it brings us back to Christ when Christ says, follow me. You journey with Christ, you follow Christ, and he's going to make you a fisher of men. He's going to transform our character to where we're then able to step into the things that he has for us. Look at the disciples. They were knuckleheads when Jesus called them to follow him. They're always making mistakes, arguing who's going to be the greatest, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, but they continued to walk with Christ. And Jesus transformed their life. Christ's death and resurrection, Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people get saved. Could you imagine if you saw 3,000 people come to know Christ at one time? Here's this man, Peter, that had so many struggles, but he followed Christ. Follow Christ. And as you follow him, God will fill you with his spirit to do great things for his glory. Consider this as we close. Are you on the warpath for real this morning? God has you here because you're about ready down to knock down some wall. People are going to get hurt, people that you love. Why don't you try hearing from God and communicating with that person that you have the conflict with? And I mean that person. Sit down with them face to face not other people that are surrounding it. Communicate with them and see what God would do before you knock down the wall, before you go into this battle. And then, is there famine in your life? You look at it and you go, man, there's this long season. I'm talking about years of famine. Could it be because there's willful disobedience in your life as God's child? Just a moment, we're gonna sing to the Lord. And in that time of worship, it's a time of response. Right where you're at, or you can come and receive prayer, but you say, Father, 
I'm coming home to you. I've rebelled against you. And because of it, my life has got unnecessarily hard. And I'm coming back and God will restore you. And then examine who am I following? Who am I looking up to? And is it Christ? Because you're going to become like those you follow. Let's stand, let's pray together and end in worship. Father, we ask that you would allow us to take your word, that it would hit our hearts and our lives and we would apply it today. That we would have communication before we enter into battle, that you'd bring peace into relationships. Those that need to return to you, that they would feel your love and that today would be the day of coming back to you and entering into your restoration. You're so good at at restoration. God, our heart breaks for our land, for our country to see us go against you. And we ask that there would be an explosion of the knowledge of God in the United States, that there would be an explosion of the understanding of who you are, Jesus, that you would be glorified, that you'd be magnified, that people would hear the name of Jesus, know his message, and respond to him in genuine faith and repentance. We don't know where things are headed. You know where things are headed but we pray that many people would come to know you. God, we want to fulfill the purposes for which you have created us and called us. We don't want to run away from the giants. We want to follow you afresh. Jesus, we commit today to follow you. We want you to shape and form our lives.